I'm always sort of, you know, sitting there looking at, at these kind of reports on AIs replacing doctors, etc., and sort of thinking that that is, that is a very naive way of kind of thinking about how the world works, but also how change actually happens. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Axel Heitmuller has learned to live in a state of gray. As an economist, he's learned that everyone has an opinion. As a caretaker, he learned about the relative value of life. As a government official, he's learned that one must balance incrementalism with radical change. And despite an early belief that he wasn't cut out for healthcare, he's had a notable career driving innovation in the UK healthcare system despite its resistance to receiving it. Today, Axel serves as managing director at Imperial College Health Partners, where he works to bring public and private sectors together for the good of the UK healthcare system. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, Lisa. Yes, David. Why don't you tell the good people out there what you are doing at Manat? Manat. Um, Manat Phelps. Manat. Yeah, really. Tomato, tomato. Um, actually, I'm super excited um, getting to work with people who, some of whom I've known for probably 25 years. Um, Manat Phelps is a professional services firm, has a full service law firm, full service consulting firm. And my role is going to be to lead the technology and digital group, as well as support the healthcare group, and also to run their venture fund. So I'm super excited about what I'm doing. Wow, it sounds like you are very busy. <laughs> it will be very interesting to figure out how to balance this. And as with all new things, it's always a little scary to jump off into the deep end of the pool. Well, we're certainly uh, excited to see how it's going to go, and it seems incredibly exciting. Well, thank you so much. I, um, I'm i excited. And you know, one of the things I'm excited about is I also get to keep my affiliation with Health Excel, an international digital health collaboration group through which I met Axel Heitmuller. Axel. Nice transition there. Thank you. Axel, how are you today? Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa and David. And uh, Lisa, congratulations on the new role. Oh, very thank exciting. You. Thank you very, very much. So Axel, we're going to just dive right in because you, you have a very interesting life. You grew up in Germany where the stereotype is that everything is black and white, not filtered in shades of gray. And yet you're very thoughtful about engaging around this gray zone topic. What in, what have you learned or what enables you to see all sides of issues and help you think so so holistically about different points of view? Well, um, I think there's a range of things that I probably have encountered over the years um, that have contributed to that. I mean, I, I started life off actually in a very sort of linear and analytical way, um, uh, you know, having political discussions with my parents uh, and, and friends. Um, and, and my, you know, I should say my, my father is an engineer, so I guess there was, um, you know, sort of an, an analytical gene in my... Yeah, you really had the genetic loading, I was thinking. <laughs> my God, I don't think you had a chance. Well, um, but, but, you know, they, to, to their credit, they decided to send me to a Steiner school. Um, I'm not sure how much you, you know about these schools, but, they're, you know, it's quite popular in, in certainly Germany and in uh, Switzerland. Um, and they're very much so focused on arts and nonlinear thinking mm. and have a you know, strong focus on teaching you how to learn rather than necessarily the content. And I guess that has stayed with me, even though yeah, I've picked relatively uh, yeah, analytic, analytical topics like economics and so on. Um, I, I think this, this upbringing in, in, a, in a more creative environment that was much more focused on sort of asking deeper questions and um, challenging, uh, you know, the sort of um, status quo 
uh, is probably something that, that has stayed with me. So you were, when you were young, you had to choose between mandatory military service or mandatory community service, and you chose the latter, which drove you into the healthcare world the first time you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how it shaped your thinking later in life? Yeah, you're right. So um, when I grew up, we still had military um, military service in Germany, and um, you, you could apply to effectively do something else, and, and I did. Um, and uh, then found myself caring for a very um, severely disabled um, young person who had actually gone to my school and, and had a terrible uh, accident and was misdiagnosed and, and effectively in a sort of persistent vegetative state. Oh my God. Um, and I, I, you know, I was greatly concerned to work with disabled um, people and kids in particular. Um, yeah, I was sort of, I'm not entirely sure what I was actually afraid of, but it was a, was a big step for me to do it. And I guess I only did it because there was a connection from, you know, from the school that I went to and, and this young boy went to the same school. Um, and it, yeah, I'm so glad I did it. Uh, it was probably one of the most, um, one of the best experiences I, I, I had at that kind of, you know, period after school, um, because it, it forced me to see life in a different way. And I guess I learned a few things. Um, you know, dis- disability was still considered um, the, you know, sort of a thing that actually no one really wanted to talk about or even see. So a lot of the kind of um, institutions that, that you know, cared for um, young people with disabilities were sort of slightly hidden away. And, and I guess what, what, what I learned is that disability um, is, is a spectrum. So th- this young boy went to school and I went with him every morning. Um, uh, and in his class, there were quite a few people with autism. And particularly, I think, for, for these young people, it became very clear to me that what, what's normal and what isn't um, becomes quite fluid after a while when you work mm. with these children. Um, and I guess that, that is also something that, that stayed with me for, for later life, that actually, mm-hmm. you know, whatever we consider normal, um, it's probably not. It's just a particular point in that spectrum. That sounds like such an incredible way to learn that lesson and powerful to learn it so early, to recognize that sort of, you know, health exists along, you know, is sort of dimensional versus, um, you know, like a, versus a step function. And, you know, on the one hand, I guess there's sort of the Susan Sontag version of, you know, you enter the realm of illness and then you sort of leave it. But but for for so much, for, and particularly, I think as people get older, you know, the 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 the, the you know, things get a lot can get a lot grayer, and you sort of the the, the boundaries between is somebody well is someone sick, and how one moves between the areas. That sounds like a really profound lesson to have learned in such a dramatic way so early in life. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm a big fan of these of these um, uh, kind of you know what we call community services in Germany, but. Um, they don't. They don't really exist in many other countries. Um, and later on, when I was involved in policy, we we had conversations in the UK where it would be really, you know, opportune to actually introduce something like this because a lot of people here take a gap year and you know have probably really great experiences. But but in many ways, sort of exposing yourself to to some of these very challenging situations, um, you know, I, I greatly benefited from, and and I wish more people could actually benefit from. But there's a trade-off, right? Forcing people to do something after school um, is, is a big political step, um, especially in the UK, where there's much more that you know the state is enabling rather than um, sort of hands-on in, in, in many areas. Um, which, yeah, I, I think it's a shame. It should be something that every sort of young person um, has has an opportunity to to go through. But you said also that this experience drove you away from healthcare because it was really hard. <laughs> 
and you thought you were not cut out for it. Well, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, I guess it did, right? I mean, not so much this particular experience. I, I you know, I then decided to to go into economics, um, and for pragmatic reasons, I basically, you know, continued to work in care homes on, on weekends and evenings to, to earn some money. And I guess, you know, I saw my experience was was one of the kind of, you know, fantastic sort of environments where the parents really cared for this child and there was a very caring environment. But I, I then later on saw sort of the the opposite of that, um, the kind of institutional version of, of care, which was often, you know, heartbreakingly detached from from the the individual and, and the patient. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of decided that actually... I probably couldn't do that um, every day. Uh, and, you know, I'm a bit squeamish about blood as well, so it probably doesn't <laughs> help. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of figured that probably politics and economics is, is, is more for me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, eventually I came back to healthcare in a, in a slightly different way, which, which is great. So you said, uh, well, I don't know, I think uh, politics and economics are probably filled with blood these days. But uh, <laughs> you said that arguments with your dad about these, co- these topics, politics in particular, drove you to economics so you could win arguments with him. Um, but then you learned that economics was not so much a science as you originally thought. How did this, you know, factor into your point of view? What, tell, tell us about, about your- this dismal understanding. <laughs> And also, if you would yeah. tell us what transition <laughs> economics is. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably a really bad reason to pick to pick a discipline uh, because you have arguments with your dad and you... Very you know, Freudian, friend. but whatever. Remember, <laughs> this, 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 this was the sort of late 80s, uh, you know, early 90s, and um, there, there was a lot happening around us. Um, Eastern Europe was kind of, you know, starting to, to get very fluid. Um, there was stuff happening in China. And, yeah, I had these endless debates about politics, as you probably do, as you know, most young people do. Um, but I, I felt every argument was somehow coming back to economics. You know, we can't afford it, or, you know, the markets, and et cetera. So I, I was incredibly curious to actually understand um, the, the sort of mechanic mechanics of, of, of the economy. And I felt that was a good underpinning for, for then, you know, move into to, to a more political space. Um, but, you know, what I, what I found quite quickly uh, in economics was, you know, it was great that I went to a really creative school. It didn't help with the math at university. <laughs> One, two, um, uh, it, it, it was far from, you know, sort of uh, giving us all the answers um, as, as most, I mean, you know, I would consider economics not necessarily a sort of science. Um, there's a lot of math and statistics and so on, and I, I you know, deliberately went into that sort of space. Um, but it's, it's, you know, far from giving you a lot of answers. And the most frustrating thing was for me that economics is great at describing a particular, you know, state and um, uh, is very good at looking backwards, but it's fantastically useless in terms of looking forward. Um, and, you know, um, I, I then went on to study transition economics because all this stuff was happening in Eastern Europe and I was really, really interested in understanding how you get from a plant economy to a market economy. But again, you know, I, I got somewhere, but economics is, is not a particularly good tool to understand um, the, the sort of, you know, the societal change. That's fascinating because, that, that I mean, it sounds like essentially you sort of had some recognition, I guess, of the reductionist fallacy, right? Where you're sort of like saying, okay, you want to have sort of a quantitative understanding of what you're observing. You kind of figure it comes down to the movement of money. You want to understand it in a scientific way. Um, I mean, this is so much what happens in medicine, as, as you appreciate as well, where people are like, oh, let's try to understand disease. Let's try to understand in terms of the molecular biology. And then it turns out that there are all these subtle 
normal social things that drive health as much as anything else. In this case, what you're describing drives the economy as, as much as anything else and attempts to have these ultra-reductionist descriptions. You know, something gets lost in that. Is, is that what I'm hearing or is that all my projection? Yeah, I, I, I think that's spot on. And, and the entire, you know, discussion that we're having about artificial intelligence at the moment and, you know, whether AI is replacing doctors and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the sort of the business I'm in now, which is the, the kind of innovation space, so the spreading of best practice, um, it, it's fairly obvious that innovation is, is absolutely the wrong term. It's all about behavior change, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if there isn't the kind of human, human dimension to all of this, um, then I guess we're lost, right? So I'm I'm always sort of, you know, sitting there looking at, at these kind of reports on AIs replacing doctors, et cetera, and sort of thinking that that is, that is a very naive way of kind of thinking about how the world works, but also how change actually happens. So you said, uh, you know, you kind of fell into government by randomly applying for a government job in London that you got, much to your own surprise, and ended up back focused on disability uh, and people with disabilities, and you know, through a series of events, ended up back ended up in London, you know, working for the Prime Minister on Downing Street. What did, what was it about government service that attracted you, and then and also maybe what repelled you from it? So, so when I you're right, I basically one day opened the Economist, and there was a job in in London, and I applied for it because I I, I wasn't able at that stage to decide whether I wanted to stay in academia. Um, and, you know, as it so happened, I got that job. But I, I was fascinated by it because the British Civil Service is, um, you know, has, has a certain reputation. And in particular for, for an economist, um, there are, you know, a few choices that you can make if you don't want to go into uh, academia. And I didn't necessarily want to go down the sort of banking route. And um, so the, the, the British Civil Service um, has a fantastic economic service. And, you know, I was keen to get into that. And I was lucky enough to do um, exactly that, uh, and and then you know I was in a world that um, you're right. I went back into disability initially, which which was fairly random, was serendipity, um, but obviously something I felt very strongly about. Um, so I, I found myself in a very bureaucratic world, um, and and while I really enjoyed the sort of the eco- economic bit of it, um, the cultural bit of of the civil service, certainly in in the sort of bit that I was in initially, was quite challenging. In what way? Uh, well, basically, you know, I, I, I like to kind of, I had learned at the stage to challenge conventional thinking, right? I mean, that, that was something that had been ingrained into me through the school, um, you know, the sort of uh, social service that I did. Uh, and also actually doing a PhD in economics was all about kind of challenging. And, you know, as, as you know, the, the sort of academic environment is one that can be extremely challenging and, and not particularly polite. So, you know, combine that with my sort of, um, a German heritage and put me into a very uh, British civil service environment. Uh, and, you know, there, there is potentially a clash. In terms of understanding how that resolves, because on the one hand, you know, it sounds to me like you sort of have a, a you know, a recognition, you know, you're saying that, okay, people who want to have this, you know, you know who who fetishize innovation, who are like, oh, we have to disrupt everything and change everything. You know, you're appropriately skeptical about that. On the other hand, you... One of the things that's sort of driving that movement is people look at bureaucracies. I can imagine a British civil service would be like that. That says, oh, my gosh, it's, I mean, really almost a canonical example of a dyed-in-the-wool structure that says needs to change. So here you are kind of appreciating the limitations of both, right? You appreciate the limitations of sort of, you know, techno-hype or sort of, you know, the idea of, oh, 
magic or technology is not going to be the magic answer to things. But on the other hand, something the the status quo has a lot to, has a lot of um, problems that need need some change. So how, how do you resolve that? And actually, Axel, I you know I remember seeing you do a presentation once talking about these issues using the metaphor of a book called Sparky the Sloth, uh, which is a children's <laughs> book uh, about this sloth. And so maybe you can bring that into your storytelling here. Yeah, that, that came later when the kids came and, you know, I, I got inspired by children's books. No, I, I think you're raising a really, really, you know, a profound point that, that I think is work in progress. And I, I can't, you know, proclaim that I have the magic answer to, to, to these, you know, really difficult things about change. But as I said before, I, I sort of, I think I have started to appreciate a lot more that it is fine to make a logical argument to, you know, assemble all the facts. Um, and then, you know, still, <laughs> you, you don't get anywhere because there is, there is resistance. And, and that's, you know, cultural, that's basically, um, you know, some, it, it's just hard work to change, right? We all like change, but we don't like to change. And, and that's what, what certainly, you know, I come up against um, uh, in my current job, but, but certainly also came up against in the civil service. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about this lazy sloth hanging off the tree, um, predominantly wants to sleep and eat. Um, but, but really, you know, regardless of what you do, you can't actually sort of animate this this creature. Um, that, that's the kind of that that's the kind of daily that's the daily you know exercise that we're going through at the moment. And and I guess what 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 I have learned is the kind of power of storytelling. Um, you know, to give you an example, we a couple of years ago, um, London prides itself as being the city where if you have a stroke, um, a st- acute stroke care is fantastic. But if you look at the data in terms of um, what we do in terms of stroke prevention, we're terrible. And, you know, a lot, an extremely high percentage of people die uh, while having a stroke being on the wrong medication. And, you know, initially we walked into the kind of rooms of commissioners um, who procure effectively these services mm-hmm. and said, it's all terrible, here's technology, you know, off you go and do it. And, and they just kicked us out. And it was only later when we actually came back into those rooms and could tell a story, a personal story about how many people they had let down mm-hmm. and are letting down every day and how many people are dying and what that actually means, that suddenly the conversation changed, right? And then, and then it was suddenly possible to, to have a conversation about innovation, to have a conversation about the figures and so on. But, but there, there needed to be that emotional connection. And, so and I think that, that is very hard to do and very exhausting, right? And so we, we, I managed to do that sometimes, but not all the time. And I think if you really want to be good at that space, you have to do it consistently. And some people are really good at that. Um, for, for us and me personally, it's still working. Maybe you should have gone into behavioral economics because you know <laughs> what, what you're describing is just what Kahneman would describe, mm. right? So, totally, and and we you know we're collaborating actually with the behavioral insights unit that came out of Downing Street. So my old colleagues set up um, this behavioral insights unit. Um, you know the whole nudge space. They're working very right. closely with with U.S. colleagues in that, and we're trying to deploy some of those um, techniques. But you know what I would say is they're great at the kind of marginal impact. Um, and you have to do an awful lot of them to add up to a bigger impact, uh, and that, that's, the, that's the challenge. So you've spent quite a bit of time, you served three prime ministers, so working in the government, and realized you wanted to find what you believed to be or would be a more innovative space. You went to a hospital in the UK and uh, to, to lead strategy. Was that better, worse, the same? It was 
tough because, you know, I, I obviously came out of um, probably one of the most exciting sort of spaces that you can think of. Um, the center of government, uh, high pace and, um, you know, constant change and access to power and really smart people. Um, but I, I left that deliberately because I felt it was a bubble. And then I exposed myself to the sort of the other extreme, you know, the people that had sat at the receiving end of our policy making, if you like, the front line of healthcare. And, you know, you, you have, I, I'm not a medic. Um, I came out of central government. You have a significant credibility problem. Um, so why should, you know, Dr. X engage with you or, you know, any of the kind of care professionals, frankly. Um, and, and so I had to find connection points and you know that that's where for example the kind of analytical space came in because yeah, i learned quite quickly that doctors and and care professionals respond to kind of analytics and data and so on and and so that was a connection point but mm -hmm. it, it was it was hard i mean those three years were actually um quite difficult uh on on, on many levels you now are at imperial college where you work uh, on innovation and digital health what does your role entail now yeah, so, so basically it's, it's not just Imperial College. So Imperial College Health Partners is uh, a, a network of eight hospitals and um, uh, eight commissioners, so payers effectively. But as you know, there's only one payer in the UK, um, but still we have these local payers. Uh, and then three universities and Imperial College, and we took the name from the college, is, is but one partner. And think of us as the chief innovation officers for that health healthcare ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, which really covers tertiary care all the way um, to community mental health, primary care. Uh, and I guess what, what the sort of, you know, daily, the daily struggle is to understand what keeps our partners awake at night and then find solutions that we can bring in that exist um, and help them implement it. Uh, so, so we're not a kind of, we're not interested in tech transfer. We're really interested in the sort of systematic stealing of, of what works elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and that process, I would call innovation. I mean, what you're describing, and again, this has been such a fascinating conversation for me because it really seems like you're at the really leading edge of um, implementation of where you're saying, okay, there, there may be promising technologies around in the world, and you're trying to figure out how do you apply. I mean, what I think you're dealing with, it almost sounds like at a, at a, at a I mean, at some level, a national level, is what I feel so many people who Lisa and you know and, and I independently run into are people who, on the one hand, you you know, here we are in Silicon Valley, we see so much technology around. Um, Lisa would say, well, now we see the haze, but under the haze is the technology. Um, but trying to figure out how to apply it in a thoughtful way. And, the, and here you are having such a deep perspective on what are the challenges, how things are, how it's difficult. What are some practical examples you've seen that, that are a path forward, like that, that where people have identified a problem and have applied technology? If that's the right approach, is that the right approach? I mean, to say, because that's typically what happens is people say, okay, well, let's have a work group that identifies yeah, well, what, problems. I, I mean, I think you're asking what has he stolen that's worked, right? So to his earlier Thank comments, you, stole great yeah. ideas. Uh, yeah. is there, or is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. Like, like, in other words, the way we're, th we're doing it is, you know, is to think about a problem, think about the solution, you know, and try to match them. But I'm wondering what have you done or have seen that work? Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. And I, I think, Lisa, and you probably as well, David, we, we all sit in rooms and see a lot of companies all year round. 
And I would argue that, you know, probably 80% of, of them have a solution looking for a problem. And and we come to this from the other end of the telescope. And we had to learn that, by the way, right? When we started off live, we, we were also in the kind of push um, space, partly because, you know, government wanted us to be in, in that kind of space. Now we're just more, much more in the, in the sort of pull um, space where, where, as you say, we're, we're sitting down with, with people trying to understand what the problems are. So to con- continue the, the stroke example, I guess, um, you know, so stroke prevention, great technology around. We all have seen ECGs on the back of the phone, and now you just need to put your finger on the little light, and all of that is fantastic. But in isolation, useless. Uh, and, and, you know, to bring that to life, um, so it's, it's a beautiful point solution that has uh, FDA approval and has approval in the UK. But guess what? It spits out a PDF. It doesn't integrate into an EPR system. And, and you know, the PDF in the EPR system is an attachment that's not searchable. So, so you know, we can give out these devices, um, but that doesn't mean that we have actually impacted the workflow. And um, even if you get that far, you then have to think about, fine, so I've found someone with with, with a risk of stroke, so I need to change the medication. And there are new medications around now. um, uh, And, you know, which one should I pick? There's there's a level of training involved for GPs and so on. So I guess I'm making the point that I think from where I sit, um, the successful companies going forward will be the ones that appreciate that, whatever they come up with has to integrate into a workflow and it has to be a pathway solution rather than a point solution. And and so that, that's what we get increasingly excited about. People that come to us and say, I don't just have a shiny object. I actually have thought about how this integrates. So does that mean, Axel, that you can only have incremental innovation, not radical innovation? If it has to accommodate what's come before, do you have to move in small pieces? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if you have seen, you know, as an economist, obviously, I, um, <laughs> I still stay, stay in touch with some of the literature, but um, uh, Gordon has, has written a fantastic book, which is called um, The Rise and Fall of Economic Growth, where he goes through basically 100 years of all the big inventions and how they have impacted on life. And there's a chapter on, on medicine in, in there as well. But yes, absolutely, I guess the point he would make, and we recognize that as well, is most stuff is incremental in the sense that somewhere someone makes an invention but before it then gets to the market actually a lot of other people get to tweak this thing and make it relevant for a context and and so it is it it is inevitably actually quite a long journey and that's why sometimes when people sort of say it takes 17 years from invention to you know bad side i i sort of wonder what what they have in in mind in terms of their kind of benchmark um, the World Economic Forum has published all these adoption curves, which is a beautiful database that you can download. Uh, and, and, you know, things like running water took an awful lot of time to actually get to all the households. Um, uh, so you can walk through a lot of technology, and it, it just takes a long time. So um, what you're reminding me of is, is really stuff that, that, that's brought out very nicely by this uh, book, uh, Learning by Doing, by the econ- by actually a tech guru who's now sort of teaches economic history, I think, uh, James Besson, um, uh, where he talks exactly about how, how it, first of all, the number 17, that was like, that's been totally, no one takes that number seriously. Someone looked into that yep. and it was like, it was sort of based on really like limited data to put it gently. Um, but the, how long it takes to go from um, an invention to sort of widespread implementation and it, it can take, you know, 
crazy long because there's so much that you that, that you sort of need to do. Um, but I guess the question is when then you think about it, I'm not sure if I sort of saw it as incrementalism versus not. But what you're saying really echoes what I've heard Bob um, Kocher talk about, what they're looking at Venrock, for example, to invest in. And he said he agrees. He doesn't want point solutions. But you're sorry, or you know, I think Lisa was phrasing it in the context of workflow. But another way to look at it is saying that, oh, what Bob might say and what like people at Verdit would say is no. So therefore, they're trying to build a full stack solution. So forgetting about all the verbiage, it's like saying we want to build not just this one little thing, but we want to build a lot of the elements of the system so that it can be useful. Does that resonate or not so much? It, it absolutely does. And that's, you know, what, what, what our team does. Um, you know, we have a range of fantastic people that their day job is effectively to, I mean, the, the first step is really to understand the problem deeply. You know, often our partners come to us and say, well, you know, we have problem X, but then we dig into the data, we talk to people, and we figure out that actually that is not the problem. So, you know, I'm very keen that we move to more systems thinking, you know, getting engineers involved and so on. And, I, I, you know, once you have a deep understanding of what really drives this problem uh, in a holistic way, then, you know, the next challenge in this very fragmented innovation world, you know, the, the world used to be really simple. There were, there were drugs and a bit of med tech, but now this digital world is just mm-hmm. crazy, right? I mean, I guess that's where, where, where sort of platforms like Health Excel and others come in. Um, so, so then the job is to go out and find actually stuff. But, but I guess, you know, to give you another example, we, we have a very engaged um, clinician on diabetes and, and what this individual would like to do is more self-care for their patients. And so he has picked two or three, you know, apps. Um, but the problem is he, he doesn't just need three apps. So the challenge is also he needs a platform. And, right. and then he needs these three companies to talk to one another and talk to the platform. And, and guess what? I mean, he, he wants to you know, focus on the care. He doesn't necessarily want to be the sort of supply chain manager. But there are very few business models around that can, can you know, sort of knit this community together and that's in many ways where we're trying to innovate right with our procurement people and so on to to see what sort of types of contracts we can get um how we can keep this alive so that it's always the best three apps so that there's a whole range of things around products that i guess we haven't figured out so Axel, we're you know coming to the end and i you know one thing i wanted to ask you about is that on a different tangent perhaps uh, although it has some i think relation so now, now you're a dad with your kids who are probably trying to figure out how to do something to argue with you differently. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the things we talked about was your current sort of focus on what you say to your kids in this difficult time in history where a lot of previous norms are being challenged and, you know, making progress on uh, the lack of empowerment felt by many parts of society, you know, that there must be a way to curate better discussions in society. What, what are you doing there? What are you thinking in there? And how can we move that conversation forward? Yeah, you, you're right. I mean, in, in many ways, you know, we're in fascinating spaces and we're very fortunate to, to be in the, in, the, in the, you know, for the opportunities that we have. But in 10, 15 years, if you sort of look back and, and sort of, you know, see yourselves now in, at this point of crisis, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm very fascinated how, what, what people looking back in history sort of consider a crisis point and, and very rarely, a bit like innovation, crisis is incremental, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the 30s didn't just happen from one day to another. 
it's fascinating how you know sort of little bits of erosion of freedom happened over many years and and i guess what we're seeing at the moment is is something very similar right it's probably slightly different in nature but um there is something going on and so the question is what contribution can we make all of us to 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 cushion that right i mean to, to deal with that risk and and one observation which bizarrely also comes actually out out of the health world is we, we don't seem to have very sophisticated conversations, right? So basically, mm-hmm. take healthcare data. Um, the, the whole privacy issue is hugely contentious in the UK. And and we, we do sort of tokenistic consultations with patients about whether they want to share or not. I guess in the US, people for some years, and the Obama White House and, and you know, others have pioneered this, they have focused much more on deliberative processes, deliberative democracy, and a lot has been done on genomics and so on. And, and I guess there's a sort of wider point, right? Do we actually not just need to think about what kind of policies address the current issues or, you know, immigration and redistribution and globalization, but also how we conduct politics and whether we actually need to have completely different conversations and the quality of the conversations and move into proper dialogue. And that's where, you know, I'm getting increasingly interested in deliberative democracy. Um, and how we can scale that. So in many ways, I look at this through a very similar lens from the kind of, you know, day job, mm-hmm. which is there is something that actually has been proven to work. So take the abortion debate in Ireland that had a referendum on, on abortion. Hugely difficult, given the cultural context, but it prepared this very carefully through public consultation and, and deliberation. And it succeeded. It was a fantastic example of how this can be done. So how can you take something that works and scale it and, 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 you know, be innovative in democracy? That's sort of, you know, the thing I'm getting increasingly interested in. That's great. I, I hope you're highly successful in your efforts there. I think we all need it. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Axel. It was a great conversation. Fascinating discussion. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. Real pleasure. Today's guest, Axel Heitmuller, was speaking to us today from London, where they have way better accents than David or I. Axel has such an interesting point of view, and I appreciate the way he's deeply thinking about how we curate conversations that include everyone, you know, whether they're about data or healthcare or social justice. Yeah, I, just, I thought every aspect of that conversation was really interesting. I, I, um, he seems so realistic at this point. I mean, I, it was almost painful because... I know, right? He, <laughs> I mean, he's so thoughtful. And I mean, it's almost one of those things where, you know, when they describe us, sort of the most successful leaders aren't the most realistic ones. Or they're the ones who are sort of almost have like a an unreasonable optimism or an unreasonable belief, whereas he seems sort of so grounded and so aware of all the problems. Um, I, uh, I hope that he'll still be able to sort of use this grounded approach to still sort of guide his organization in the place they want to go. Well, I actually think that grounded approach could be pretty useful in some of the healthcare conversations that go on. No, I mean, you and I, I mean, just, yeah. just, just not to protract this, but I think both of us, for both of us, our sort of our premise is being grounded and being, you know, not, you know, trying to recognize the limitations but when you're trying to do something that's so difficult yeah. and you start off with such a deep recognition of the limitations, um, I just hope he's able to muster the enthusiasm that he's going to need. You almost have to have an unreasonable belief that you can achieve something to get it off the ground. Well, you can follow David Shaywitz's writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal review as well. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at Venture Valkyrie. Also, please make sure to help people find the show and uh, rate us on iTunes. We are very grateful today to GE Ventures for their sponsorship of the program. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Cheerio. Take care.